Welcome to the Seashore Church Message of the Week. This message is designed to bring more of heaven into your world today. For more resources like this, or to learn more about our church, visit seashorechurch.com. Jai, wherever he is, sitting with one of the Schultz's boys, just got his license. Congratulations. And, uh, you know, our kids are homeschooled, and Liam, his older brother, who's now 18, has had his driver's license for a couple of years. If you don't homeschool your kids, you probably don't know this, but, you know, there's two portions of it. There's the classroom portion of driver's ed, and then there's behind the wheel. Well, normally, if you're in public school behind the wheel, you learn in class, like you go to a class. But when you're homeschooled, I am the behind the wheel instructor for my kids, not Romy, me. And so when Liam was learning to get his driver's license and had to take behind the wheel, I don't know if you're an older child in here, like you got younger siblings, or maybe you're the middle child, maybe you're the baby like me. Um, But when Liam did behind the wheel, by the way, both these guys are fantastic drivers and very conscientious and but when he started behind the wheel, I'm more nervous for me than I am for him. So I'm thinking, I, I can't mess this up because if he crashed into a car, somehow it's the teacher's fault and I'm going to have to take responsibility for it. So I was probably the harshest, worst behind the wheel instructor. Do you remember how many of you, well, you probably hopefully you took driver's ed. When you, when you take the driver's ed, like the school driver's ed, they've got these cars where like on the passenger side, they've got a brake pedal. You know, and, and I don't even know if they have a steering wheel, but I know that my instructor was like two inches away from my steering wheel. And every now and then when you think you're going to hit a car, I think I put my foot through the floorboard of our car because we did not have a brake, but I kept wishing that we would. Not because he wasn't doing the job well. That's just dad going, oh my gosh, he's going to hit every car on the road. What's happening? And so he went through the harshest driver's ed instruction I think ever like everything that was in that manual we did three times I made him pull into a space he had to get it five times no you had to get it ten times in a row where you got to be within three to six inches of the white line in front of you and then you go back up and do three to six inches and he had to do ten in a row before he could go to the next one took us three hours one day in a parking lot to do that I wanted to make sure they had to know how to change a tire has nothing to do with the normal driver's ed I'm like this manual is not thorough enough 75 pages, I'm going to add some stuff that they forgot to leave out, the professionals. I wish I could find a stick shift anywhere because he definitely would have had to learn how to drive a stick shift. I made him learn how to parallel park. Anybody have to learn parallel parking? There's your oldies right there. Anybody that had to learn parallel parking? That is so off the driver's test right now. In the driver's test, they literally take you around the block and go, that's great, well done, here's your driver's license which is a little scary. So Liam obviously passed his driving test with flying colors. He did fantastic. But there's something about that second child that by the time Jai got around to driver's lessons, I kind of just went, you got this, right? (laughs) Yeah, he did that. He's fine. Just go take your test, man. You'll be fine. And then he got his driver's license test and did an excellent job. So well done, Jai. But for some reason, I don't know. If you just get lazy, Bella, I don't even know what we're going to do with her. We're just going to assume she got a word of knowledge about how to drive and go, here you go. Off you go. Off you go. Awesome. Well, this morning we actually want to kind of conclude this series that we've been doing 
on how to read the Bible. The Bible is the best book that's ever been written. It is the bestseller still around the world. It is God's word for us. A couple of things that we've shared about in the previous weeks, and if you haven't heard these previous weeks, don't worry. This will make sense to you. doesn't all one build on the other. But uh, we shared how the Bible, you should really look at it not as a book, but as a library. It's a compilation with two major volumes, one called the Old Testament, one called the New Testament. And so understanding that there are history sections, there's poetry sections, there's action sections. For, in order for you to learn how to understand your Bible, you first got to know what section of the library you're in. We don't read books of poetry as if they were historical books we don't read historical books as if they were poetry books. Those are just some of the things we shared. Some other things we mentioned were, I think I gave you some reading goals, is to understand probably the most important thing about reading the Bible is to remember that the whole Bible, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, their purpose is to point to Jesus. Both Old and New Testament have the same purpose, to point to Jesus. The Old Testament was pointing forwards, the New Testament kind of pointed backwards to say this is who Jesus was. The Old Testament says this is who the Messiah will be. So if you're trying to figure out what is the purpose of a particular passage that I'm reading, just remember somehow it points to Jesus. Last time we shared, because Romy had a great word last week, we kind of in the middle of the series that we're doing, but the week prior to that, we talked about how never to take the Bible out of context. Don't just read Bible verses. Because if you take Bible verses, you'll misinterpret the whole. But interpret a Bible verse, first of all, in relationship to the paragraph that it's written in, and then the paragraph in relation to the book that it's written in. Then consider other things that that same author has written to kind of get the gist of what the Word as a whole is actually teaching to us, and then it how it relates to the whole Bible. That's just a snapshot of the previous couple of weeks. If you missed them, you can always get them on our podcast that goes out pretty much every Monday or Tuesday, and you can kind of play a little bit of catch-up. Today, our last one, and this is Bible reading goal number five. Somehow we did four weeks, but this is number five. I don't know what I did. I must have either miscounted or did two weeks into one. But Bible reading number five, goal number five, is to always look for Easter eggs, Look for Easter eggs. What do I mean by that? I'm not talking about literal Easter eggs. You ever heard about like Easter eggs in movies? Like there's something, all the Marvel guys just smiled, right? If, I've learned that often if you see series of movies, they put these little Easter egg things in the movie which are always linking back to something that happened in previous ones. Now, I read all the Lord of the Rings books, so when Lord of the Rings came out, and the first one came out, The Fellowship of the Ring, I'm like, oh yeah, well in The Hobbit, this is what happened, and in The Cimmerillion, that's when you know you're really into Lord of the Rings. You know there was a book before The Hobbit? Nerd. All right, so I'm like, oh, this is what's going to happen, and this is linked to that, and then, wait till you meet Sheila. Well, who is Sheila? Oh, that's going to come later. I can't spoil it for you. So there are all these Easter eggs that happen, and then of course, Star Wars when the new Star Wars or the old Star Wars, I'm not sure how that timeline exactly works out. Well, when I was a kid, we didn't have DVD players and that sort of stuff. And, and, and DVDs, kids, those are these little things you put into a machine that actually play <laughs> a movie. I had the, the Star Wars movie on a record. 
like the audio. It was the whole movie, not the video, just the audio of the movie on a record. And I would get up for school every morning and play that record. I had the entire script of the first Star Wars memorized. Like I can watch Star Wars, A New Hope Now, and I've got every word. I can just repeat it. It drives my kids crazy, right? And so when the other movies came out, I'm like, oh yeah, well that's because this guy is about to show up. There were Easter eggs. And so you see the Easter eggs in the new movie that always link back to something that happened in the originals. And then Marvel came around, and I am so lost in the Marvel universe. I've got no idea. I'm going to put Sam on speed dial because he is like an encyclopedia of Marvel information. See, kids, an encyclopedia is these books that we used to have on a shelf <laughs> where you'd open a book to find something out. I'm so lost in the MCV. But the point is, in order for you to understand something that happens in the current movie, you have to know what happened in the movie prior to that. So when did this character show up first? When, how, why is this significant now? You've got to understand the new by knowing what happened in the old. And the Bible kind of works like that too. The Bible, especially in the New Testament, has these Easter eggs. And I want to share with you from Proverbs chapter 25, verse 2. This is kind of the principle that helps us to learn how to do this. And in Proverbs it says, it's to the glory of God to conceal a matter. To conceal. Why would God conceal a matter? Don't you think he'd want to make it as obvious as possible? I know he should with me, because sometimes things that are obvious to him are not so obvious to me. To search out a matter is the glory of kings. Well, I'm not a king. You want to bet? The Bible says that we are kings and priests. As a believer, we are kings and priests. So it is to our glory to search out a matter. Now, when we talk about little Easter eggs, Easter's coming pretty soon, I think. It's, uh, I, I never remember when Easter is because it's got something to do with the moon or something. I don't know. It's coming. I can tell you that. It is coming. And it's going to be a great Easter. Next week is Daylight Savings Time. Anybody happy about that? So when you are a parent, and if you're like my parents, you, you hide Easter eggs, right? Like that's a big thing on Sundays, and you want to hide them. And, and as kids, you go find those Easter eggs. Now, what is the purpose of hiding the Easter egg as a parent? Do you hide them because you don't want your kids to get them? That's my chocolate. That is my surprise. You're not getting these Easter eggs. No, of course not. You hide Easter eggs for the purpose of them being found. So the younger you are, the easier it is to find. The older you are, the harder it gets to find. You're supposed to make it a little bit harder. And have you ever seen the expression on a child's face when they find the Easter egg? Like they've got their basket, and they're excited, and they're running around the neighborhood. Neighborhood. Running around the yard. Depends on who's hiding the eggs, right? They're running around the yard trying to find them. I know some Easter egg hunts is where you just like put them all out in a field. That's so boring. Hide the egg. Come on, let's get creative with our Easter egg hiding this year. But when they find them, the joy on their face that I found something that was hidden. God does the same thing for us in his word. He has things that he purposefully hides 
not so that we wouldn't find them. He purposefully hides them so that we will. And he loves the joy on our face and in our hearts when we find something that he's hidden for the purpose of being found. That's why it's his glory to conceal it, but it's our glory to find it out. That means when we find what God's hidden in his word, we receive glory from him. So we're going to help you this morning a little bit with kind of how to find. I'm going to give a couple of Easter eggs to you in scripture, but there's so many more. But I want you to understand the purpose of this is not to make it more difficult for you. It's so that you can share in his glory when you find these things and discover them for yourselves. There's things in the old, sorry, there's things in the New Testament that require Old Testament understanding. And as I said before, you don't have to be an expert in the Bible to begin reading the Bible, but you can become the expert. It's not about where you start. It's not something you have to already have a certain knowledge of before you begin. It's like training for a race or starting a new hobby. You just start with where you are. Just literally open your Bible, start reading it. Become a a student of the Bible, and pretty soon you're becoming the expert before you even know it. Just get started with where you are. You see, Jesus' audience, when Jesus shared some of these things, and I'm going to share with you a couple of these points, you got to remember that the people he was sharing them with, they already had the Torah, which is the first five books of the Old Testament. They had the law, and they had the prophets. Torah and the law, the same thing. They had the prophets, and they had the poetic books. They have what we know as the Old Testament. That was their Bible. They already had that. So most of the people that Jesus spoke to were very well trained in what the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible was. That was kind of the only education that most of them got, was biblical education and maybe a trade, but there wasn't like a vast array of scientific learning and all that stuff. They knew their Bible and they knew their trade. So when Jesus shared some of his Easter eggs, the audience that he was sharing them with would have already linked them back to the Old Testament reference that he was referring to. But for us... Unless you grew up in a Jewish home, you may not understand some of the customs and some of the Old Testament things that he's referencing back. You may realize there's an Easter egg here, but you don't really know what it links to, or you may not realize that you just found an Easter egg. I just got this weird plastic thing in my yard with chocolate in it. What's the point behind this, right? So I'm going to help you with some things because I shared with you, I think it was Bible reading goal number two, was to remember that as, as readers... Our job is to place ourselves in the time and culture of the original audience. So we don't read the Bible through our eyes. We have to read the Bible through the eyes of the people that it was originally written to. Because although the Bible was written for us, it was not written to us. It was written to a specific people at a specific time. So in order to interpret those things in the Bible, we got to place ourselves in that time and place. Does that make sense? So let me share with you a couple of Easter eggs. The first one is that Jesus often referred to himself this way. Now, we know him as the Son of God, and many people refer to him as the Son of God, but he used this term that was different. He called himself the Son of Man. Nobody else called him that, but Jesus referred to himself that way. Now, when I read that, I would think in my modern eyes that that's just maybe some kind of humility. Maybe he's saying, look, I'm just like you. Right? I was born of a woman. I'm a son of man, just like you're a son of man. It's like this trying to come alongside people. But I got to tell you, if you were the person hearing that, you would be familiar with that term. 
And it's mentioned in one very prominent place in Scripture. And it's in the book of Daniel. 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 Why did Jesus refer to himself this way? In Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, it says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. This vision of Daniel was probably the strongest reference to the Messiah in the Old Testament. So when Jesus is referring to himself as the Son of Man, he was not doing it as an example of humility. This was an example of his authority. When he gets up and says, I'm the Son of Man, they all went, where have I heard that before? Wait a minute. By saying you're the Son of Man, you're not trying to... Jesus was humble, but this was not the message he's communicating. He's communicating, I am the one that Daniel had the vision of. I am the one with all authority, all glory, and all sovereign power. Son of Man is an Easter egg. Isn't that cool? That gives you perspective to know not just is he claiming to be that, but imagine, again, if our goal was to put ourselves in the position of the people that heard that for the first time, imagine hearing someone say that. I imagine there'd almost be two camps, the who do you think you are camp and the oh my gosh, it's happening camp. I know which one I'd rather be in. But that moment, there was no debate about who he thought he was. He would later show them who he was. Let me show you another Easter egg. In John chapter 10, Jesus also refers to himself as the good shepherd. Anybody know this one? John chapter 10. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. It says much more in John chapter 10. But I know for me reading it, I grew up as a kid in Sunday school memorizing the 23rd Psalm. Anybody else remember the 23rd Psalm? But I remembered it in the New King James Version. And the NIV, I'm reading it, and I'm like, they got it wrong. It's not the way you're supposed to say it. It's the only thing in the Bible I memorize in the New King James Version. I love the New King James Version too, but for some reason, it has nothing to do with my message. Back on track, Clayton. Come on. So when he shared this, my automatic thinking about the good shepherd. Oh, that's right. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. Right? He makes me lay down on green pastures. Like there is a connection there. But do you know it's not the only place that Jesus referred to shepherds? Because if you look in Ezekiel chapter 34, there was a very different message that God shared with about shepherds. And this is a little bit long, but I want to read this whole thing to you. Ezekiel 34, starting in verse 2, he says, Son of man, this is God speaking to the prophet Ezekiel, okay? Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Woe to you, shepherds of Israel, who only take care of yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds, clothe yourselves with the wool, and slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. You have not strengthened the weak, or healed the sick, or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays, or searched for the lost. 
You have ruled them harshly and brutally. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And when they were scattered, they became food for all the wild animals. My sheep wandered over all the mountains and on every hill. They were scattered over the whole earth, and no one searched or looked for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, because my flock, whose flock? Because my flock lacks a shepherd, and so has been plundered and has become food for all the wild animals, and because, whose shepherds? My shepherds did not search for my flock, but cared for themselves rather than my flock. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against the shepherds and will hold them accountable for the flock. I will remove them from tending the flock so that the shepherds can no longer feed themselves. I will rescue my flock from their mouths and it will no longer be food for them. For this is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd after his scattered flock when he is with them, so I will look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. I will bring them out of the nations and gather them from the countries. And I will bring them into their own land. I will pasture them on the mountains of Israel, in the ravines and in all the settlements of the land. I will tend them in a good pasture. And the mountain heights of Israel will be their grazing land. There they will lie down in good grazing land. And there they will feed in a rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. Remember, that was all the things that Psalm 23 said that was going to happen. But the shepherds weren't doing it. The shepherds were fleecing the sheep. So God said, I myself will tend my sheep and have them lie down, declares the sovereign Lord. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak. But the sleek and the strong I will destroy. I will shepherd the flock with justice. When Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, he's saying, you are not. This was not just this, I am the good shepherd. He is reflecting back. It's an Easter egg, not just to Psalm 23. It's an Easter egg back to this Ezekiel verse saying, You have not been shepherding the flock, therefore I will do it myself. I am the good shepherd. And you're not. I read Ezekiel 43, and it's a constant reminder because I am also a shepherd. But it's a constant reminder to me that you are his sheep, and this is his pasture. And I am both a shepherd and a sheep. The tragedy of John chapter 10 is when I hear pastors quote this verse as if they are the shepherd. They quote this as if you're supposed to be following them. Do what I say. I am your shepherd. The whole point of this is that Jesus is the good shepherd. I am a shepherd under him, but I am still just a sheep. just like you and the only reason you would follow me is because I'm following the voice of the good shepherd but if my voice doesn't sound like his you ain't following me 
The only reason you follow my voice is if my voice sounds just like his. It's like the shepherd says something and I say it out and you're like, okay, let's go. But the moment a shepherd starts following the, stops following the good shepherd, it's not good. It's obviously not good for the sheep, but it's also not good for the shepherd. The Easter egg, when he says, I am the good shepherd, is he's contrasting it with the shepherds that they've had. You know what I love? God is so into redemption that even bad shepherds can become good. Even bad shepherds, through repentance and through forgiveness, can become better shepherds when they begin to again hear the voice of the good shepherd. The problem is when you stop hearing the voice of the good shepherd, you start creating your own voice. And I hear people say this, I'm just trying to find my own voice. I'm like, you don't need to find your voice. You need to hear his Start sounding like him. It's okay to be an echo if the one you're echoing is the voice from heaven. I don't need to be original. I don't need to find the new best way to, to say something. I just got to sound like our shepherd. He is our father and he is a good shepherd. Amen? So, you notice that when Jesus said, I am the good shepherd, he didn't directly say, unlike the ones Ezekiel said. Because he didn't have to. They already knew that that's what he was talking about. In their minds, because they knew the Old Testament, they linked it back. And it was actually a common rabbinical technique to not finish the sentence, to only give half of the sentence because they would have connected the dots. And it becomes more powerful when you say half of something and then you finish the sentence in your own head. Because then you understand what he's saying without him having to say it. The problem is, we're not living in first century Judaism. So we don't always have the previous knowledge to link it back to. But do you know what makes that really easy for us now? Stuart already used it this morning. Thank God for Google. I don't think you'll hear me say that too much from this pulpit right here. But when, or the Bible app, if you want to be super spiritual about it, but I'll be honest, when I'm looking stuff up, I'll find it in Google and then find it in my Bible. Google is not the source, but it can be assigned to point to the source. Anyway, sorry, Romy. Um, but technology has made this very easy for us. And here's what you do. You read John 10.10, 10, right? And you keep seeing shepherd. He's talking about shepherd. And something in you is just like, huh, shepherd, shepherd. And you find that the Holy Spirit begins to highlight something to you. Because remember, the keys to discipleship that God's given us, his two biggest tools are his word, the Bible, and the Holy Spirit. So... They work hand in hand. Not, they're not mutually exclusive. It's not, I'm a Bible person. I'm a Holy Spirit person. Well, you better have both because God gave both. And one without the other becomes either dangerous or foolish, right? And so using those together means if I'm reading John 10, 10, and I keep hearing shepherd and the Holy Spirit is just, when I mean highlighting, it's just drawing your attention to it. The Holy Spirit can be that subtle that it's just this word that's like, huh. You ever have that? You read something, you're like, huh. Pay attention to the huh, but then make it easy on yourself. Just open your Bible app and type in shepherd. Don't ask for God. Don't open your Bible and go, Lord, let it be this one. No, no shepherd there. Okay, try this one, you know. I know God can speak to you that way sometimes, but he also gave us technology to make it easy. So I'll just go in and I'll just type in shepherd. And then this Bible app will populate every time the Bible says shepherd. Back in my day, you had to open up your concordance in the back of your Bible. Anybody got a concordance in the back of the Bible? And they're so limited. 
it would be like shepherd and two references because you can only fit so much in there. But man, your iPhone has got so much ability to find that stuff. And then just actually go to your Bible and look up all the times you have shepherd. And you'll see the link between the new and the old. That's, it's that simple, right? And so that's how you'll find that when he talks about shepherd, yes, it's in the Psalm 23, but there's this Ezekiel reference. And you're like, huh, he talks about shepherds in Ezekiel. And then you open it up and the Holy Spirit's like, that's what I wanted you to see. Don't let Google tell you what it wanted you to see. But you can use technology to let the Holy Spirit show you what he wanted you to see. And you'll discover the Easter egg. I got one more. One more? Two more? Three more? Seven? No, one more. This was the one that was probably the most significant to me. There was a moment, and I always, sometimes, and I guess this is the challenge for us sometimes, you'll have a way that you've always interpreted a particular verse, and in your mind, that's how this verse works. And I'm not saying to undo that stuff, but I am saying to let God speak to you afresh about things that you were already familiar with. When you don't know something in the Bible and you see it for the first time, it's easy to go, I don't know what that means, I've got to find out. I think it becomes a little more challenging for something like John 10.10, 10, I am the good shepherd. And you're like, okay, I know what that means. And then it's like, well, hang on. Maybe there's more to this than what I actually realized. That's when it becomes a little more challenging. For me, it was this one. It was from Matthew chapter 18. It was a moment when they're all sitting around. And I love how the disciples have these conversations with Jesus sometimes, like the off to the side. They'd see Jesus do something, and they didn't know what it was. And they'd come, hey, can we talk to you for a minute? What was that thing that you just did? I love when our team does that. Our pastoral team is often like, can you explain to me what just happened there? <laughs> I love that. I love those questions. I love people that are just wanting to grow, and they're curious, and they, they're like, I don't, I'm not trying to pretend like I have all the answers. I actually want to know what they are. And so Peter asked this question. Now, let me give you a little bit of background on this. So you had the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible, right? But in between the end of the Hebrew Bible in the book of Malachi and what we now read in, in Matthew as the beginning of the New Testament, remember they did not have a New Testament when Jesus was saying these things, but at the arrival of Jesus, there was a 400-year gap where there was no word of the Lord. There were no books written. God stopped speaking to them because they were disobedient. Any parents do that? I'm not going to give you any more instruction until you do the last thing I told you to do. Just me? Okay. So there was this 400-year gap. In that gap, they, the, the, the religious leaders of the day, the bad shepherds, had added over 600 more regulations than what God had given them in the Hebrew Bible. And that's what Judaism is. It's all these other regulations and things that they had to do. So they had so many things they had to live up to, and nobody could possibly live up to them all or even remember them all, is they had this minimalist approach when it came to the things of the Lord. The minimalist approach was not what's the most I can do, but what's the least I can do and still get in. It's like when you're in class and you're like, I know my kids don't do this and I don't do this, but what do I got to do to get a C? Like that's, I'm, not, I'm good with a C. What do, what do I got to do to pass? Okay, I have to do, my paper is 20 pages what do I get for 15 pages? Can I just get a C and just work your way in there? That was their approach to obeying all these rules and regulations because it was impossible. What's the bare minimum that I can do? And so as long as you got in through the minimum, you're still in, right? It didn't matter if you got an A or a C, 
you're in the club if you did the minimum. So they had this minimalist approach, and you can criticize them for it, but to be honest, if you had 600 things you had to do every day just to be okay with God, you'd be like, can I do five? Is that okay? Right? So you see this minimalist approach all through Scripture. Even in the Old Testament, you would see it. Giving you a little bit of background. So Peter comes to Jesus with this question. That Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? And Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. What a weird thing to say. And I always thought when I read this, 77 times, surely he's just like using the same number to make a point that it's a whole lot more than you think it is. That when you forgive, you're going to have to keep forgiving. But I know in the minimalist approach that these people had, they would have gone 490, got it. So on the 490, did I do my math right? 70, 77 times? No. Sometimes it says 70 times 7, sometimes it says 77 times. So on the 78th time, you're out, bud, you're done. And you're at like 75 and a half right now, so just so you know. But he's taking this minimalist approach, and then Jesus throws a monkey wrench and goes, no, not seven times, but 77 times. But I remember reading that going, I think I know what this means. Is that Jesus just says, just keep on forgiving, right? But then I thought, maybe there's an Easter egg here. So I did the most holy spiritual thing I could think of. I googled Bible 77. You can do it on your own phone. Or if you have the Bible app, is it, uh, it's called the Bible app, right? Yeah. Um, not Bible Gateway, but the actual Bible app. Um, if, you, if you type in 77 times, there's another reference that comes up. And oddly, it's from Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4. Don't put it up yet. It's come from the story of Cain. You know Cain and Abel from Genesis and the New Testament? So Adam and Eve gave birth to Cain and Abel. And for one reason or another, Cain ends up killing his brother Abel. And because he killed his brother Abel, he's banished from the Garden of Eden and from God's presence. And uh, things don't go so well for Cain from that point on. And so a few generations later, I think only three generations later, there's this guy that shows up on the scene that's a descendant of Cain. Cain was kicked out because he killed his brother. Why did he kill his brother? Because he was jealous, and in his anger, he used this retribution to lash out against his brother. And then he's banished and begins his own family line. Okay? His family line was begun from being banished because you lived a life of retribution. That when somebody does something you don't like, kill them. And that's what got him banished. And now he's got a whole line that's birthed in that. And in Genesis chapter 4, verse 23, it says, Lamech said to his wife, Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to me, wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. It's the same reference. That's the Easter egg. When Jesus is saying you need to forgive your brother 77 times, it's in direct contrast to Lamech's attitude that when somebody does something wrong, I'm going to be avenged 77 times. You injure me, I kill you. 
I bring a gun to this knife fight. That's the attitude that Lamech had been in. That's the mindset. See, Cain just killed Abel. But now his descendant is killing somebody who wounded him, saying, I will be avenged 77 times. Can you see where this leads? It's like the Hatfields versus McCoys. It's, it's the blood feud. At some point, something's got to break or else everybody's going to end up dying if you live your life that way. And so Jesus is saying, I am breaking the pattern that you have lived under since Lamech said that back in the book of Genesis. That's what's happening here. Lamech was a product of a few generations of revenge culture. You see, generations tend to get worse unless there's healing that happens in the middle. It's why it's so important for you to be free and for me to be free so that my kids are more free, not more bound up. I fight my demons so they can fight their own. I don't want them fighting my demons. My demons is not a great terminology, is it? I don't, they're not, they don't belong to me. Well, they belong to me now, you know what I mean? But what I'm saying is I fight my battle so they're free to fight theirs. I don't want my kids to end up fighting my battles that I never fought or that I ran away from. That's why you do what you do. You fight your battles so the rest of our generations and our kids don't have to. They can live in peace and security as a result. But if that doesn't happen, the generations get worse. The abused becomes the abuser. So Jews in Jesus' day would have known this verse. They would have been very familiar to it. And perhaps they would have known this verse and thought, yep, that's right. Now, we read that verse and go, boy, that guy's in. He's got a bad attitude. Jews would have been like, yep, 77 times. That's right. And they had had a history of being abused by their neighbors. And as a result, they developed this mentality that whatever our neighbors have done to us, God's going to do to them 77 times worse. And so they're waiting for the restoration of Israel. They're waiting for the Messiah to come, not to save their souls, but to come to avenge them 77 times. Smite them. We want them out. Restore the kingdom. Punish those who have done wrong against us. And you think, oh, come on, the disciples, they're all lovey-dovey, right? Remember John, the disciple of love? We talked about this in our Wednesday night class. The disciple whom Jesus loves. He laid his head on the breast of his Savior while reclining at the table. Do you remember him and his brother James? They wanted to call fire down on a whole city just because they didn't receive their word. Could you imagine me going to lunch going, God, get them right now. We're going to lock the doors, fire and brimstone. I did not get enough amens. Three people nodded off and somebody else went to get coffee and never came back. <laughs> Smite them, Lord. But yet John, the, the disciple of love, was wanting to call fire down on a whole city. And so Jesus is addressing it. He's saying, I don't want you to get revenge 77 times. I want you to forgive 77 times. This mentality that you've been living in, you want me to punish those who have done wrong to you, but I've come to forgive them. And I've come to reconcile them to me and to you. Because the Bible says he destroyed the dividing wall of hostility. The dividing wall of hostility is not between God and man. It was between Jew and Gentile. And he said, not only am I destroying, ripping the veil, 
that separates you from me, but I'm destroying the wall of hostility that separates you from everybody else. You got to get this right. I want you to forgive 77 times, not because you're keeping a numerical count on what you're supposed to do, but I am reversing the principle that you have lived under. We don't pray that God would punish those who do evil. If we do, you better watch out for some lightning bolts and fire and brimstone coming your way. We pray that they would meet Jesus for what's happening in Ukraine right now. I'm not just praying, God, bring your justice. I'm saying, God, bring your mercy. Bring your love. Bring your peace. Bring your salvation. I know justice is already who you are. I don't have to ask for you to bring justice. But I'm asking that in your justice, that they would know the love of Jesus. That they would know that there is a better way besides warring with each other. And yes, I'm wanting you to uncover all the wrongdoings and all the things that are done in secret. But God, even then, the only reason that you want to uncover those secrets of evil that men are doing in back rooms is so that you can save them. Because you didn't come to condemn the world, you came to save it. And you're the good shepherd. You laid down your life for the sheep. You didn't come to the earth and go, I'm done with you. Maybe I can't do a flood, but I'll figure out some other way to wipe you all off the earth. You came and you gave yourself. So whether it's in Ukraine, whether it's in Africa, whether it's here in our nation, God, let them know your love. Let them know your character. We forgive those who do wrong against us, not because we were taught to do so. We forgive those who do wrong against us because he is living in us. And that's the spirit of Jesus. The Spirit of Jesus says, you don't have to live like how you were raised. You don't have to live like how you were taught. You don't have to fight for yourself. You don't have to defend yourself. You don't have to defend your... You know what they've been saying about me? God, did you you read that tweet? I mean... He says, forgive them. Because you don't need to respond back. Boy, if I had some opportunity. There are more posts that I have deleted in my lifetime because the Holy Spirit was said, nah, there's a few that I probably regretted, but most of them, I'm pretty good when it's directed at me. When it gets directed at her, I'm a different person. 77, 77, got it. It's not about vengeance. It's not about hoping you correct people. It's not about hoping that, God, I pray you would uncover lies so that people would think differently about me. God, I pray you would uncover lies so they can see you. Because it'll change them. God, when you revealed lies that I have believed, I saw you with a new light. I didn't see you as a God, a God that I had to hide from. But when I heard you walking through the garden in the cool of the day, It made me realize that you are the cool of the day. You are the ruach, the wind that blows through the trees. The wind that fills my spirit, my heart. You unite with my spirit. God, I can't forgive people like you. But if you'll change me, I can... I can actually forgive people as you because you're living in me and I can be free I can live free I don't have to live life broken 
pieces glued back together. I'm a new creation. The old is not glued back together. The old is gone. And I live in you and you in me. You are the vine and I am the branches. So Lord, I pray for every person here this morning. I pray that we would know your nature, your character, that your power would flow through us. I pray that as we dig into your word, that you'd reveal to us Easter eggs. We'd pay attention to what you highlight to us. And Lord, I also pray that we wouldn't be in a hurry to finish the chapter, finish the book, finish the reading plan, but to stop and take time and go, hey, there's something here that you want me to see. And when I find it, I receive your glory. It's to my glory. And even my glory is actually your glory reflected in me. But I get glory when I find the things that you've hidden for the purpose of me to find them. So Lord, I thank you for those Easter eggs. I don't curse Easter eggs because they're hard to find. But when I find the easy ones, I get excited to find the hard ones too. So I pray for your spirit to guide us as we continue to dig into your word. I thank you that it is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, even to dividing soul and spirit, that we would know what's just in our head and what is actually in our spirit. And we would be led by what's in our spirit, not just what's in our head. I thank you, Jesus. Bless your people. Amen. 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 Thank you for joining us today. For more resources like this or to find information about our weekly services, visit seashorechurch.com.